Fathers, we're getting the raw deal. Have you heard the statistics on the comparison between how much is spent on Mother's Day compared to Father's Day? We're getting a raw deal. You work hard, you put your kids through school and get them through college and all that stuff, and maybe they make a professional team and make the winning score and the interview. The first thing they say is, hi, Mom. We're getting a raw deal, dads. So, no. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Take your Bible, turn to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. We've been in a series of messages, if you're visiting with us, about famous people of the Bible. And we've just been noting how God chooses unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. An elderly, infertile couple, Abraham and Sarah, God chose to populate a nation. And last Sunday, we looked at a spoiled boy that was sold into slavery by his brothers, eventually then was thrown into prison. And yet somehow God elevated him to a vice president's level to help save the land from famine as we studied the life of Joseph. And what we keep seeing is that in spite of the calamities of life and in spite of man's bad decisions and sinful choices, God can still weave it all together to bring about good, can't he? Just like it says, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God did that with the storms of life thousands of years ago, and we believe and know that he still does it today also. Isaiah 55, verse 8, that Old Testament prophet, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And we ought to be grateful for that. And God has this, this big picture in mind. He knows the end from the beginning, doesn't he? He, he knows everything. And so this week we're going to study another unlikely individual, you might think whose name is Moses. Moses. And if you know Moses' story, then you know that he, he's fortunate to be alive. At the time of his birth, the Israelites, sometimes referred to as the Hebrews in Scripture, they're living in Egypt, living there in captivity. And the Pharaoh of Egypt, and Pharaoh is just a, another word for king, but the Pharaoh of Egypt didn't like the massive numbers of Israelites of these Jewish people, these Hebrew people, which was at that time estimated to be as high as two to three million people. But they're providing the slave labor for Egypt. But he began to see them as a growing threat to Egyptian power. Because what if a nation invaded Egypt and all of a sudden all these Hebrews sided with the invading nation they could just overrun them. So, Pharaoh issues an order that any Hebrew baby boy that was born would be put to death. You know, I think about that, and I think long term, what's that going to do to the slave labor? But it didn't make a lot of sense that way. But he's a brutal man, and he's got a very hateful plan. But Moses is born in the midst of that, and his, his mother gives birth to him, but they just couldn't bring themselves to allow him to be killed. They, they saw something in him 
something special, the Bible says. And that's understandable, but before the Egyptians have the opportunity to find out about him and to kill him, she hides him for three months until evidently his size and his sounds probably make that impossible for it to go any longer. She's a wise woman, a godly woman. She happens to know when Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile River to bathe each day and where that's at. And so Exodus 2 verse 3, we read, When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile with his big sister Miriam stationed nearby. Well, Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And at some point, I would imagine, it's daddy, daddy, can I keep him? Can I keep him? And he looks into those big brown eyes of his daughter and thinks, well, one little Jewish lad, he's not going to be able to hurt our cause any. And he allows her to keep the child. But just before that happens, Miriam steps out when she first finds the baby and says, shall I go get a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And she says, yes, do that. And she goes and gets Moses' own mom, who is paid by Pharaoh's daughter to take care of her own child and to, to raise him up and wean that child. Now, how long that took, the Bible doesn't say. But evidently, long enough for those parents to instill within Moses a sense of who he was and who his people was. She named him Moses. Why? Because she drew him out of the water. And that's what the name Moses means. So Moses is raised and ultimately among royalty. And somewhere along the line, he, he, he remembers he, he's a Jew. He's, he's of the Hebrew people. And at one point in adulthood, he goes up to Goshen to visit his people. And he sees a Hebrew being mistreated by one of the Egyptian taskmasters. And a fight ensues. Moses intervenes and kills the Egyptian leader. He thinks that probably only a handful of people have seen what's happened, but he's mistaken. Because Exodus 2.15 says, when Pharaoh heard what had happened, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses escaped from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Moses is 40 years old at that point. He goes to Midian where he's going to live for the next 40 years of his life and he becomes a shepherd there. Quite a distinct contrast from the life that he was living in the palace of Pharaoh. But now he's out in the wilderness, out in the desert, tending sheep for a man whose daughter he marries. But one day in a miraculous fashion, God speaks to him personally. And specifically, and you remember how God did that, right? God spoke to him from a, a burning bush, sure. Bush is on fire, but the fire never consumed the bush. Moses turns aside to look at it, and as he comes near, God says, Take off your shoes, Moses. The place you're standing is holy ground. And in Exodus 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard their crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. And I would imagine Moses is thinking, all right, that's great. That's awesome. God, you, 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 thank you for intervening. All of my people are in slavery. But in verse 10, he hears God's going to involve him 
with the plan. God says, so now Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And what follows through the rest of their conversation is much like the honest exchange that we have with God when we feel inadequate for some task he's asked us to do. Because Moses says to God, he says, who, me? Me? I can't do that, God. Who am I to go stand against Pharaoh? Who am I to stand against the Egyptians? And God says, I'll be with you. And Moses says, but I don't have the answers, God. They're going to ask me questions I don't have the answer to. In fact, what if, what if my own people ask me what your name is? And God says, tell them, I am has sent you. I am who I am. And the Lord goes on to say to Moses, I'll do great things for you. But Moses just tries to weasel out of it, just, just a little on me. How can I make a difference? Who am I, God? So the Lord reveals to Moses three different miraculous ways in which he'll be able to convince the Israelites that this really was God's plan and that they should follow Moses. He says, Moses, throw down your staff. He throws it down, and it becomes what? A snake or a serpent, sure. And God says, pick him up by the tail. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? But Moses reaches down. When he touches the tail, it immediately becomes a rod again. Then God says, the second miraculous sign I'll give you is this. He said, put your hand inside your cloak. He does. When he brings it out, it's white with leprosy. God says, put it back in again. He brings it out, and it's restored. It's totally whole and clean. And God says, if they still don't believe you after that, if the Jewish people still don't believe that you will lead them out of captivity, then I want you to get some water from the Nile River, and I want you to pour it out on the ground. And when you pour it out on the ground, that water will become blood. So you see what God's doing? He is silencing Moses' argument that he can't make a difference, that he can't convince people to follow him. And this is an important lesson for us to learn right here, that God will never ask you to do something without enabling you to do it. You know that, don't you? God will never ask you to do something without enabling you to do that very thing. That was true thousands of years ago. That's still true today. And this has been a heavy discussion between God and Moses. And it's about to expose an even deeper level of insecurity. In Exodus 4, verse 10 and following, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And most people think that he had a speech impediment. Or that he maybe even stuttered. So he's got a legitimate question he's asking. But God's reply is what? <laughs> the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And Moses said what? Pardon your servant, Lord, but please send someone else, anybody else but me. 
Sounds a lot like us sometimes, right? But the Bible says there in chapter 4, the Lord's anger burns against Moses. And the Lord God Almighty says, here's the way it's going to go down. You're going to lead my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, a massive exodus, if you will. And I'll have your brother, Aaron, be your spokesperson. He will speak on behalf of you. You will tell him what to say. And I look at that and I think, boy, I hope I'm not like that. And it motivates me to be more obedient and trusting when God prompts me to do something. Because, folks, I don't want to get to eternity someday only to hear the Lord say to me, you know, I wanted you to do this for me and you said no. You kept putting a fight up. You kept saying, no, I just don't think I can do that, Lord. I don't want to hear him say that to me. And granted, God's request for Moses to be his mouthpiece, that's a pretty intimidating proposition. In fact, you know what the number two fear is among Americans? The number two fear is death. You know what the number one fear is? Public speaking. Yeah. Public speaking. So we can kind of understand where Moses is coming from here, okay? And the Bible, it's real. It doesn't, it doesn't candy coat the story any. It lays it out the way it was. But have you ever felt like Moses? I mean, have you ever felt like saying, God, you got the wrong person? You're asking the wrong person to do that. It's not me. God, it's got to be somebody else. I can't make a difference. I can't make a difference, God, in my work environment. I mean, I'm... God, I'm too busy to help those hurting people that, that have been ravaged by storms in their life. I, I don't feel gifted to encourage that elderly couple that live on my street. I mean, God, that's just not me. You got the wrong person, Lord. And what must that statement sound like to the God of the universe who created you? And who knows how many hairs are on your head? For us to say to him, God, you got the wrong person. And I wonder how many times he just wants to say to us, you said I was the Lord of your life. You said you would follow me. You said you would do whatever I ask. Notice here with Moses, when Moses puts all of his excuses before the Lord, that God never says, oh, Moses, you are so humble. I am so encouraged by your humility. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that God got angry with Moses. Angry with him. Why? It wasn't humility, was it? This wasn't humility. It was self-focus. Insecurity is not humility, it's pride, it's too much focus on self. I can't do this, I can't do that, I don't think I can speak well enough, I don't think they'll listen to me, I really would rather not do it, find someone else, where's the focus? I, 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 this isn't humility folks. But something happens here, and Moses changes. He becomes obedient. He goes to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt that had millions of Israelites and under slavery. 
Most historians believe that since this is around 1450 B.C. in that area, that the Pharaoh at this time is Thutmose III. You say, so big deal, what's, what's the deal with Thutmose III? Well, most historians believe that he would have been Moses' half-Egyptian brother. They would have known each other. They would have grown up together in the palace. Now 40 years have passed, and here's this shepherd, Moses, 80 years old at this time, standing before this king, this Pharaoh, and this is what Moses says to Pharaoh. He says, the Lord God says, let my people go. Now, folks, you've got to understand this is an incredibly telling moment. This is, and this audience will understand this, the second service may not, all right? But this is Winston Churchill staring down Hitler and telling Parliament, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall never surrender. This is Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. All right? This is that kind of moment where Moses looks at Pharaoh on behalf of God and says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh looks back at Moses and he says, because you've made this request, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell all the Israelite slaves they've got to continue to make the same number of bricks they've, they're required to make every day, but from now on we're not giving them any straw. They've got to go find the straw themselves. In other words, same production, fewer supplies. And Moses exits, he leaves, and all the Israelites hear the story, and they say to Moses, thanks for nothing. Thanks for nothing. We got our hopes up. We thought God was involved in this. Now we've got more work to do, and now the Egyptians hate us more than ever. But Moses doesn't stop there. He begins on a series of visits to Pharaoh, and while some of them appear to get Pharaoh's attention and soften his heart, none of them stick, and he refuses to let the Israelites leave. So over a period of time, these are the major plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians. Look at these. First one's that of the Nile. The Nile River turned to blood. The second was frogs everywhere, followed by gnats, lice, became a plague, swarms of flies, diseased livestock, boils all over their skin, thunderstorms of hail, locusts, then darkness. But it's the final plague that finally changes Pharaoh's heart because it's the one that hits closest to home. You have to understand what happens here. After plague number nine, Pharaoh says, Moses, I don't ever want to see your face again. And he says, the day I see your face again, I'll kill you. I'll put you to death. And Moses looks back at him, and in Exodus 11 and verse 4, Moses says to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl who's at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There'll be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be again then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
And the Bible says Moses is hot with anger. This is a now or never moment. He lays it out to Pharaoh and he says, this is the way it's going to be. And that tenth plague happened just as God told Moses it would. The death of every firstborn son and the pain that it caused in every home rocked all of Egypt. Now whether you are young or old, if you are a firstborn male, would you stand up right now? Firstborn males, would you stand up? And you look around in one night's time, all of you are dead. You're gone. Thanks. You can sit down. If that were to happen tonight, overnight, I would lose my only son, and I'd lose my oldest grandson, too. You tell me that that doesn't get attention? To lose all of those people in one night and every Egyptian would have to believe in the power of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why throughout all these chapters in Exodus, if you read through it again and again, God says, and they will know that I am the Lord, and they will know that I am the Lord. If you've been involved in our Sunday night study We've made mention of that fact. So this massive exodus begins, and Pharaoh gives Moses permission for these two to three million Hebrews to leave a life of slavery. They're led out of Egypt by Moses as God directs him on the route that they should take. But sometime after Pharaoh has let them go, guess what happens? (laughs) You know the story. His heart is hardened again. He realizes, I've just allowed our entire workforce to leave, and on top of that, they work for free. So Pharaoh riles up the Egyptian troops and says, we're going after them. And so the Egyptians go after them. They go after them in huge numbers, thousands of Egyptian soldiers, plus 600 chariots, the Bible tells us, to track them down and to capture them. And Moses and the Israelites, two to three million people he's leading on foot, and God directs them to a place where all of a sudden they look up and the direction that they're moving, they're pinned in. They've got a sea of water in front of them. They've got mountains, cliffs, hills, whatever, on all sides except behind them. And when they turn around, who do they see? Here come the Egyptians. And you know what the Israelites say to Moses? Thanks for nothing. Thanks a lot. Not enough graves in Egypt for us. Is that why you brought us out here so it would be easier to bury us? And notice what happens. This man of insecurity, of inadequacy, this shepherd who struggles with public speaking, this is what he says with confidence in Exodus 14, verse 13. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. And in one of the most famous miracles of all the Old Testament, the Lord instructs Moses to raise his staff and the Red Sea parts. God brings that strong wind to keep the water back and the children of Israel, they go across on dry ground. Do I need to spend much time trying to convince you that God can bring a strong wind? 
I mean, we've all experienced that at some point in our lives. But God used several miracles in addition to this to slow down the Egyptians as they're coming after these two to three million people. But once, once when they think they're about to catch them, when they're going through the sea themselves, the Egyptians, God waits for the perfect time. And the waters are brought back and the army drowns. And the Bible makes a very strong point when it says the entire army was wiped out. Not one of them survived. And the Israelites realize they are free at last. Free at last. No more slavery for them. And it's as God says, I am the Lord and you'll know that. And they did. But listen, folks, God knew what he was doing when he chose Moses. Right? He knew what he was doing. Moses threw up all those excuses, but think about it. He's perfect now that you know the end of the story. He's perfect for the job. I mean, he's the product of the most sophisticated education that was available in that time. He learned strategy and leadership, probably from, from watching politics from the inside of the palace. All of that time that he was there for 40 years, watching Pharaoh manage large, large groups of people throughout Egypt, all of these things make Moses a prime candidate to lead. God had been preparing him precisely for this moment. And Moses says, I'm not qualified. And God says, yes, you are. If you'll just trust in me, I'll bring the Israelites out of captivity through you. And he did. And can I just tell you that God says the same thing to you? That when you feel unworthy, when you feel inadequate, God says, do as I say and put your trust in me. Because God delivers from slavery to freedom. Sin can become our master. And God can still bring us out of that slavery to sin, to freedom in Christ. God also delivers from despair to hope. There they are, pinned in with no hope. But Moses says, stand by and see what God will do. God delivers from despair to hope and still does that today. And God delivers from death to life. The Israelites are not just set free and then left alone. They are set free so they can be God's people, so they can truly live. And in the same way, we read over in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and that they might have it how? More abundantly. You can have life to the fullest. Christ has a purpose for us. Christ has a purpose for all of his disciples. Now, this story back in Exodus is a preview of salvation and resurrection. And when the Israelites are brought out of Egypt, God is saying that no amount of human power can stop him from fulfilling his plan. And when Christ comes out of the grave, the same message is there. God is saying no amount of human power can stop him from fulfilling his plan. But before we leave the story this morning, we got to go back because I didn't talk about what spared the Israelites from having their own firstborn die on the night of the 10th plague. And again, I'm confident that you know the story. How were they spared? How were they saved? Well, God commanded the Israelites 
to be prepared to flee Egypt. And the evening of the death angel's visit, all the Israelites were to eat bread, eat bread with no leaven in it, so they wouldn't have to worry about giving it time to rise. They were also supposed to kill a lamb and sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house, and that would be a sign to the death angel that he would pass over that particular house. And so that night, in the middle of the night, the cries of horror and grief from the Egyptians began to ring out through that entire nation. It was a plague like no one had ever seen before. But in Goshen, where the Israelites lived, the destroyer saw the blood on the doorposts of each house and passed over each one of them. Because the blood that they put on the doorposts was the sign. They were under the blood. That was the symbol. And that night, the meal that the Jewish families ate together, from that point on, became known as the Passover meal because the angel had passed over them. How were they saved? By the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb protected them. And still, every year since then, even to this day, the Orthodox Jews, they annually celebrate the Passover. They eat the unleavened bread. They use the very same herbs. They use the lamb. What they were prescribed to eat on that first Passover night is still what they do to this very day. And it's that same Passover meal Jesus was eating with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. Luke 22, verse 7 and 8 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparation for us to eat the Passover. And then that night, at the Passover meal, Jesus took the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he took the cup, and he said, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. What was he saying to those Jewish men? He was bridging their Jewish tradition of the Passover and showing that this was a transition for all to discover that in a matter of hours he would become their Passover lamb. He would pay for all of their sins and our sins. And so the question is this, how can we be saved today? How can we be saved? And the answer is the same way that the Israelites were saved. By the blood of the Lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 makes it quite clear. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And just as the Israelites sprinkled the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of their houses so that destroying angel would pass over, so we sprinkle the blood of Jesus on our hearts and we come through the waters of baptism just as they came through the waters of the Red Sea to salvation and we're forgiven, we're free, we're alive and we're given the promise of eternal life. The question is, have you done that? Have you come under the blood of the Lamb and have you come through the waters to freedom 
to salvation. And if not, why not? And if not, why not today? Another unlikely person that God uses to accomplish his purposes. And you may think you're an unlikely person too. But God can do great things if you'll trust him. If you have any decisions that you need to make today, public decisions, you can meet me right down in front. If you want to come up and just pray or if you want to come and talk to us later, whatever, don't let those decisions just be put on the back burner. Do something about them. Let's stand and sing.